This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On our last episode of this podcast, it was spring. Today, it's hot summer. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer coming at you at the end of a Memorial Day weekend that was fabulous. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, all rested and raring to go. And man, we have a lot of good stories to talk about. Let's begin. Last week, we talked about Mike DeWine being a grade-A hypocrite for supporting the Republican effort to wreck democracy in Ohio. Turns out the entire Republican Party gets that label, too. Layla, how did Andrew Topias catch the party in a giant lie? Well, the Republicans have been saying for the past few months that issue one would get great voter turnout. Of course, that's the proposed state constitutional amendment that would make it harder, I mean, nearly impossible, actually, for citizens to change the Constitution in the future. Even though it's slated for an August special election, which historically no one pays attention to and no one turns out to vote, the Republicans have said repeatedly that they that they expect Ohioans will be paying attention and will come out in droves to support this issue. But Andrew was permitted to tune into a phone call with Mitch Tully, political director of the Ohio Republican Party, and local party officials and other GOP activists, in which they were planning for the August election. And Tully told them that they should expect a typical summer election turnout of between 8 and 12 percent. He pointed to last August's election, which included the primaries for Ohio's state legislative districts. Only 8% of voters came out back then. He told the group that it will be their responsibility to turn out the vote in support of issue one and that they're going to have to work pretty hard to do that. Of course, even after that phone call, Republicans denied to Andrew that Tully's point was inconsistent with their <laughs> earlier messaging. I was kind of like, I mean, that really spun my head when I read that. Right. Well, it's because they just <laughs> lie. It doesn't matter. What, it doesn't matter what the facts are. They just lie <laughs> and believe, think people. Well, there's a segment of the population that'll believe our lies, right? Because uh, right. it's they, he caught him, and it wasn't just permitted. He got the invitation, so he tuned in. And you know, we had a conversation last week. Is it ethical? And it's like this is an open meeting. Anybody could be there, including the Senate president, who was the one that said he expects everyone will know about issue one. And here's this party saying, yeah, no one is going to come out to vote. You know what I don't get? I don't get how this became a Republican-Democrat thing, because this takes away the power of the vote from everybody. I mean, Republican or Democrat, if you vote for this, you're voting to devalue the power of the vote and take away the final check you have on your government in Ohio. How did this become Republican-Democrat? Well, I think Andrew kind of pointed to it in his story when he said that for some people, this is the proxy vote on the abortion rights issue. And and people are kind of seeing it myopically in that way that let's, uh, you know, if, if, if they're supporting this, it's because they're trying to destroy the chances of that passing in November, but they're not thinking beyond that. And they should. 
Yeah, because you're you're giving away your power. I mean, this is the government gets its power from the people, and in Ohio, the government is trying to erase the power of the people with this move. They did cancel and outlaw August elections for the very reason that nobody comes out to vote, and they know it's a sleazy way that local governments are trying to get things passed when the when the voters were asleep, and they're counting on that now to get this passed so that they can be all powerful. Great story by Andrew. Great catch. Really put the spotlight on the hypocrisy of everybody that's involved in this move. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We were suspicious of Cleveland's claims that the big number of thefts of Kias and Hyundais were costing the city big time. Reporter Molly Walsh did some digging, and we were right to be suspicious. Lisa, what did she find? She found that uh, last year, 2,000 vehicles were towed as stolen to the Cleveland impound lot on Quigley Road. That's an 82% increase from 2021. Now, if you look at the total cars last year, 13,673 cars were towed to the impound lot for accidents, arrests, abandoned vehicles, and they all have different prices depending. So if your car is stolen and towed to the lot, you have to pay $50 to the tower, $10 impound fee to the city of Cleveland, then you pay $9 plus tax for storage for the first five days, and then $6 a day plus tax for every additional day after that. Now, if you're arrested and your car is towed, the tow fee is $175, a $30 impound fee, and they towed about 1,300 uh, cars last year that were, uh, you know, people who were arrested, and that's up 31%. So that's if you kind of figure that everyone who had their who was arrested picked up their car, the city probably got $229,000 in revenue if all those cars were recovered. But um and we don't really have any figures on the cars that were stolen, but we can kind of do the math there. So uh, Mike Polensic, the city councilman, lives in Cleveland. He had two cars stolen in the last 20 years or so. He says it's really hard for the city to pay impound fees with so many cars being stolen today. But they're, you know, in a Cleveland federal lawsuit against Hyundai and Kia, uh, the city said the thefts had caused current and future economic damage, but they provided no money estimate for what that economic damage was. And then a uh, lawyer, Subodh Chandra says, he says, he says impound fees for stolen cars are unfair. It's bad public policy for crime victims to have to pay fees. So yeah, you can do the math. Uh, you know, that's, that's what, money. Well, what set us off on this was the claim in that lawsuit that the thefts were costing the city a lot of money because right. we knew they were collecting impound fees from every one of these cars. So they're actually to the good. They could try and claim, well, we, we have to spend money on police and filling out reports to, to get the cars that cost us money. But let's face it, they're making money on this deal. It is sad. There was a, a woman in the story. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a victim twice. Your, your car is mm-hmm. stolen and you have all that headache. And then the city is dinging you for more money. Somebody said in the story, look, car theft victims should not have to pay the impound lot fees. They have to pay the tow fee because the tow truck driver has to be paid. But why victimize somebody twice? And of course, they said, well, insurance pays a lot of this. But many people don't have that insurance. 
Well, they should. I'm just saying. But anyway, uh, I digress. But um, yeah, the woman in the story, her car was, her Kia was stolen recently. And the cops called her, said to come and pick it up from where they found it. And she wasn't able to go because she was at work. And so her her boyfriend and, and somebody else went to pick up the car, but it was already on its way to the impound lot. But they got to the impound lot before the car did. And they still had to pay the impound fee. Yeah, it's good work by Molly, and it does kind of puncture the city's argument that this is a big cost to the city. It's a cost to the residents of the city. If the city wanted to sue on behalf of the residents, that would be another thing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Tomorrow ends No Mo May, which has been the subject of much conversation and consternation in Cleveland Heights, which, quite frankly, looks like hell. (laughs) Is this whole idea based on fake science? Did any good come of it? Laura. Um, I, I, I would put it on the fake science side of the ledger here. It's a feel good idea without proof. And we can blame Appleton, Wisconsin, who went big time with this. And there's a study by Lawrence University in Appleton that involved assistant professor who's now a city alderman. And that study supported the benefits of no mo may basically the idea that butterflies and other animals and insects, they can get pollen from grass when you allow the weeds to grow and flower But that study actually was retracted in part, I guess, because the bees counted in the research were released instead of preserved and therefore unaccountable to scrutiny. He says there's being more robust data that's being compiled to support the same conclusion. But I guess Appleton just kind of went along with it because it didn't cost the city any money. But there's really no proof that there's any kind of sustenance in dandelions or any of these or grass really for the bees that we want to help. So it makes a lot more sense to not have so much grass, plant flower gardens with vegetation that provides more nutrients. And those are all of the native plants that we see that, and and, you know, things are starting to flower now at the beginning of the month. Obviously it was a little bit different. Well, driving around this weekend, <laughs> you you could see every place, all the empty lots and all the right-of-ways that Cleveland Heights hasn't cut. And it looks like an alfalfa field, man. I mean, it's just, it, I don't know how they're going to do it. When they go to cut that, it is going to burn that grass so badly. You're not supposed to cut that much at one right, time. Right, no more than a third of the grass at any time. And And so some people went out this weekend. I think they got fed up with how bad their yards look. And they did. They cut. And you can't raise the mower any higher than about four inches. So their yards look like hell. So in the yards that they haven't cut yet, it looks like hell. And the ones that they're starting to cut, it looks like hell. This was a really stupid idea. I get, you could argue that it it created a great conversation. Yes. That lots of people are talking about how do we make our yards more hospitable to pollinators. But this wasn't the answer. No, but you're right that this idea of talking about what is sustainable and what is best for the environment, because having an acre of, you know, short clipped grass, like a golf course is not environmentally friendly at all. It doesn't help anyone. And it is a pain to keep mowed. I mean, I'm the one who mows our lawn. It's like almost a half an acre and it takes me a good hour. I, I do it in chunks, like over three days with, um, I have a, battery operated mower, which I really like, but the battery has been dying before I'm even done with a third of the yard because it's so hard to cut in May. So I get the idea that you're like, wow, I'm doing something good for the environment and I I get to be lazy. It's it's a win-win, but yeah, not the best idea for environment or aesthetics. What they could do is have a community seminar on how to 
carve up parts of your yard to create pollinator gardens and mm-hmm. make it not look like hell. But this was this was a crazy idea. I mean, it, it, you really would have to to see it. I was driving past the parking lot behind the the wine spot, and I'm not kidding, man. It looked like one of those farm fields where the wind blows. It looks like the whole earth is moving. It's it's deep. Anyway, we'll see. It's a hot topic. Lots of people talking about it on nextdoor.com. Tony Kuda, the councilman, says it's not clear that they'll do this again next year. The city council is going to have a say next time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sherrod Brown has proven himself remarkably strong at winning over Ohio voters, even as the state has leaned red, and he's planning to do it again in the race for Senate next year. What's the strategy, Lisa? Yeah, Sherrod is facing a tough campaign in bright red Ohio, which is much further right than when he was first elected back in 2006. So he's going to have to peel off some Trump supporters and some undecideds to win. And he's going to have to work harder to distance himself from Democratic leaders and the Biden administration. But he's kind of already done that. There are several instances where he's kind of gone right down the center, although he's a centrist to begin with. But he did call for a two-year extension on Title 42, which allowed immigrants, you know, to seek asylum after the COVID pandemic. Um, he also opposed creation of Title 42, and but he did call for more border resources, including military. He sponsored a rail safety bill that got Trump's approval. He opposes a move to lift tariffs on solar panels with Chinese components. And he voted with other Democrats in the House GOP resolution that overturns a crime bill that was created by the Washington, D.C. city government. But Brown says he wins because of his focus on workers, and that's been his mantra really, for most of his career. And he has consistent messaging no matter where he is in Ohio. He says the same thing. He goes to communities that he says don't see elected officials show up very often. And he says he has a great track record, including the CHIPS Act and the infrastructure bill that bought money into Ohio. But the national GOP is not wasting time, you know, deriding him. They call Brown a flip-flopper and pandering for Republican votes, and that's not going to fool anybody. Yeah, it's going to be I think it's going to be a pretty big challenge for him. It's also the presidential election year and we don't know which candidates will be in that. If that's an uninspiring race, as it looks like it will be, then you won't have high turnout and turnout in Democratic areas has been extremely hampered uh, since Obama stopped being president. So he's he's got his work cut out for him. Uh, We J.D. Vance won handily in his run against Ryan a year ago. So that's the model. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, so far we only have who? Bernie Moreno and uh, Matt Dolan. Matt Dolan, right. Yeah. That talk about uninspiring. If it's Bernie Moreno versus Sherrod, I cannot see how Sherrod doesn't win that race because Bernie is pretty much a joke. But it'll be a joke with Donald Trump's endorsement if he's running, which could make a difference or not. Much to wait for. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
We raved on this podcast when Chris Ronane announced his chief of staff would be Eric Wobzer, who had a terrific reputation everywhere he has worked. Five months later, the county executive is losing his chief of staff. Layla, why is Wobzer leaving? Well, he's headed back to Sandusky. That's where he's from. He grew up there, and most recently he was the city manager there. And that's where his family has remained since he joined Ronane's staff. Wobzer will take a job as the CEO of the Greater Sandusky Partnership, which is an organization that's focused on growing the population of Sandusky, Erie County, and the region. He cited personal reasons for his departure. More specifically, his family needs him. In an email to county employees, he said that the commute has been rough, and he's made the difficult decision to remain in Sandusky to better support his family. And Ronane says he completely understands, and that Wobzer continues to be a close friend and a partner. In fact, Wobster says he he will continue working on projects related to the waterfront and downtown Cleveland transformation initiative, and he'll continue to serve on the Destination Cleveland board. So yeah, I mean, this news is quite a bummer. I mean, Eric was such a great choice as chief of staff, and as you said, Chris, his reputation preceded him as a strong leader and a catalyst for change, but we wish him and his family well, and hopefully the fact that he's maintaining some ties to our region means he might... I don't know, one day make his way back here again? Fingers crossed. (laughs) Who knows? We've always said he's a good guy, and a good guy does make this choice. If his family decided in the end they didn't want to leave Sandusky, then he's got to go to Sandusky. You know, they had a moment. They could have tied this all to Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is this beloved television show that's leading up to a finale tomorrow in which he's probably going to quit his job to go home to be with his family. So, you know, you could have Eric Wobster. You could have had your Ted Lasso moment and really had a good time. We'll have, to, we'll have to see who Chris gets next. That is um, a challenge, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of turnover in this position since Budish uh, picked somebody. Sharon Sobel Jordan got it, but then she <laughs> used all her time to get a degree and quit. And then we had a succession, uh, and now we'll have him again. Right. And and yeah, Eric Wobster was just a great choice because he left Cleveland after leading the Ohio City Inc. group and, and brought, you know, such great success to that neighborhood. And he had, you know, just so much, so many accolades and so many successes on his resume. And so it was so exciting for him to come back here. Um, but yeah, it'll be hard to fill those shoes, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it will be. And it's a key position. And Chris is only five months into his right. term. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The story for seasonal employers the last three summers has been about scarcity. They could not find workers. Laura, has that changed in 2023? It's a lot easier the work um, to find the workers, according to the Metro Parks and some other summer employers. I would say it's still not back on par with before the pandemic. But uh, my city has signs everywhere looking for recreation workers. They're paying lifeguards $14 an hour to start. When I was a lifeguard, and yes, it was nearly 30 years ago, I made four twenty-five an hour. So it's just kind of mind-boggling to see. But um, there, it is easier. The Metro Parks are on track to hire about 1,200 to 1,300 seasonal workers. That's reaching a headcount not seen since before the COVID-19 pandemic. I was at Huntington Beach yesterday. They definitely had people working the concession stands, so the lifeguards are not working yet at the beach. Uh, Sam McNulty, the owner of Market Garden, as well as a bunch of other restaurants in Cleveland, said he's had an easier time finding seasonal employees. And actually, 
they have neat statistics about how many more people go to restaurants in the summer because it's really up. I guess people have free time. They're on vacation. They love the patios. So they're still about 10 to 15% short on staff across the restaurant industry, but that's much better than it has been. It sounds like lifeguards across the country are in short supply. What what happened to I, I have that? no idea. Like, it is... I mean, you can get a job at 15 as soon as you're certified by the Red Cross. You do have to take that course, but a lot, they make it pretty easy for you because they want you to become a lifeguard so they can hire you. Our rec center offers it every spring. I remember like hoping and crossing my fingers I could get a lifeguarding job when I turned 15 because it was like the best thing going. You sit in a chair and you twirl your whistle and you teach some swim lessons. And yes, obviously you have a very important function of saving lives, but at our city pool, it doesn't go deeper than five feet. Like it's it's not the same thing as lifeguarding at a beach or or at Cedar Point, which God knows that's got to be a lot tougher. Is it just that kids don't want to work today? No, that's not what Sean found in his story. Um, they the, talk to like the Youth Unlimited people and they say they're much more willing to go to work. But maybe it's just there are more jobs that kids can do these days. And, you know, when you have a babysitting job that pays $20 an hour, maybe that lifeguarding doesn't look so good and you don't want the responsibility of literally saving lives on your hand. I don't I don't quite understand it because I was lifeguard for five years and it was like the best job. Yeah, I mean, if your choice is between slinging hamburgers at a McDonald's or sitting out on the lifeguard chair, it seems like it's a pretty easy choice, but they the lifeguards are the thing that is in short supply everywhere. Good story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A surprising character ended up being at the center of the investigation into East Cleveland police as an informant helping investigators catch some bad guys. Lisa, who is he and how did he get involved in this case? He is George Michael Riley, a.k.a. Anthony Costello. Riley operated that notorious former Arco Recycling Center off Noble Road in East Cleveland that caught fire in November of 2017 and burned for a week. Well, after that, he met with investigators from the FBI in what's called a profit interview. That means he was the subject of a criminal criminal probe himself, but they would let him off easy if, you know, he provided information for immunity or a plea deal. So Riley told the the agents that he'd been paying cash to multiple East Cleveland officials to curry favor, including former Mayor Gary Norton, East Cleveland Police Officer Von Harris, and multiple other law enforcement officers. Um, he uh, um, he was asked to fix, um, you know, they kept coming to him for cash. A lot of the police officers would say, hey, I need a couple hundred dollars here. I need a couple hundred dollars there. So they were always hitting him up for cash. He was also asked to fix a jail heating system back in 2014 that cost $10,000 in money out of his own pocket. So because of his connections and because of all the people that were in his little scheme, they the FBI said, hmm, we can use him for other cases. So they used him for a case against Cuyahoga County Land Bank official Kenneth Tyson in 2018. That was the first indictment with Riley as an informant. Uh, Tyson had agreed to add Riley's company to a list of demolition contractors in exchange for free home renovations on his home. But Tyson's attorneys used Riley's character against him. They said he had multiple criminal convictions. He overstated the amount of work he did on Tyson's home. And Tyson did plead guilty to just one count of lying to the 
the FBI and he got no prison time. Back in December of 2020, former Mayor Norton and Secretary Vanessa Veals were charged with obstruction of justice in federal court. This was in connection with an investigation into another public official. Norton was told by the FBI not to disclose that they talked to Asians agents or about this investigation, but he told Veals, then she told others. And then in 2021, um, Von Harris was indicted uh, along with officer DeMarco Johnson. Apparently Von Harris asked Riley for money in April, 2018 after injuring his knee, he couldn't be on patrol. He was not assigned to desk duty. And so Wiley, Riley was wired up. They gave him $200 to give, you know, Von Harris at, for a meeting. And they met many other times and devised a scheme to falsify police reports on two vehicles stolen from Riley's property that were recovered in Akron. And, you know, they were destroyed, but Riley said he would pay his helpers with the insurance proceeds. So yeah, it's a tangled web that he weaved, but apparently he knew and, and touched so many people in his little scheme that the FBI saw him as a good informant. Yeah, it's an odd one because, you know, let's face it, the guy's bad news. What he did with that dump, it terrorized the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it was a big concrete pad that they just kept dumping more and more stuff on. And then, mm -hmm. like you said, it caught fire and it poisoned the ground. It cost a fortune to clean up. He still owes the state, I think, millions but that's what you get when you, you're looking for informants, right? I mean, the, the, the people who are straight shooters don't really know criminals. And so right. they can't work undercover. So you go with a guy like this and then you do risk what happened where, where the defendants pillory his character because he yeah. is bad news. But he had the goods on a lot. Of, I found it interesting that the, a lot of policemen treated him as a piggy bank. And of course, he was all too willing to do it because he wanted to curry favor. But uh, yeah. Complete lack of discipline in that East Cleveland Police Department. Good story. You can read it all on Cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio. We know what longtime Cleveland School CEO Eric Gordon's new gig is now that he's finished with the school year and is moving on. Layla, is he staying local? He is staying local, thankfully. Uh, yeah, Eric Gordon has announced that he will become the next vice president of student development and education pipeline at Tri-C. The college says that they created this position to intensify the college's focus on student growth and the support needed to help students advance from one educational level to the next. So basically, Gordon will identify and address gaps in student development, and he'll also develop ways to ease the transition from early childhood up all the way through college. It's it's a concept that they're calling the college's new P20 strategy or P through 20 strategy. Uh, Tri-C president Michael Baston said, no one is better suited for this work than Eric Gordon. Gordon has a reputation at CMSD for his collaborative and innovative spirit and, and also his commitment to removing barriers to education for many children growing up in poverty. He was very special in that regard as a leader of CMSD. And I'm very interested to see how that work continues through an entirely different institution. Yeah, I was wondering, and I don't think we know whether he would qualify for the same pension by doing this. He's a few years away from being able to take his pension in the education yeah. system. I suspect it's probably the same thing. It's good news that he's staying local. I think some people worried that he'd go become superintendent of a 
of a distant school district just to get his time in for the pension before he decides what to do with the rest of his life. Keeping in, in Cleveland, I'm sure has excited a lot of educators. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Armin Budish left his job as Cuyahoga County Executive five months ago, and now we know what his next move is. Laura, where is he headed? And if you can explain to me exactly what this job is, you get extra points. I will have no extra points because I was really glad that wasn't part of the question. Like, tell me what his day-to-day duties will be. I have no idea. Uh, But he's going to Cleveland State University. So he's joining the Levin College of Public Affairs and Education. He's going to be the Mandel Public Service executive in residence. If that is not enough mouthful, bear with me on the description of the job. He's going to work with the college dean to, quote unquote, enhance the impact of the new Levin College nationally and advance the college's teaching mission and desire for civic improvement, sustainable regional development, and an appreciation of public service. That's the job description. It's no longer posted. Uh, for applicants. But apparently he's going to serve for resources for staff and students. He's going to give them the opportunity to learn from an experienced former elected official or public affairs leader. I guess he's both. So that was the announcement of this newly created position. All right. So we learn can't how figure to out squander what... public money. <laughs> <laughs> we can't figure out what he's going to do. Do you think he knows what he's going to do? I mean, it really kind of sounds like a figurehead position, right? If he's just going to be there to be the resource for people, then do they just come to him with questions and say, tell me really, how does the state house work? Like, how do I get get my bill passed or how do I get this done? I mean, because remember, he obviously two-term county executive, four-term Ohio State representative from the 8th District. He was the speaker of the house for two years, which is hard to remember at this point when you look at the house. But I mean, because obviously he's a Democrat, but they say he's got the right background, the history, served Cleveland, Cuyahoga County in Ohio with distinction. They think that it'll help the college accomplish their mission and have a greater force in public affairs. I mean, maybe maybe this is a (laughs) maybe this is a strategy by the school to get seniors to come back because then they could ask him questions (laughs) about Medicare and Social Security. (laughs) Right, because he used to lead this weekly Sunday morning senior issues TV program called Golden Opportunities. This seems like a golden opportunity for Budish, really, because it's a three-year term-limited appointment. It's funded through a $605,000 grant from the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Foundation. So if I'm reading that right, he's getting more than $200,000 a year to be this resource. I keep thinking he's going to run for Beechwood mayor because they have such problems <laughs> in Beechwood and he'd, he'd be an improvement over what they've got. They break the law. They spend money profligately. He's qualified to do that too. Well, good for him. Uh, we'll have to see exactly what he does over there uh, for all of that money. It's today in Ohio. That's it for the Tuesday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Stay cool this week. We'll be back Wednesday talking about the news. 